1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, and I'm joined by my friend,
0: Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. Um, this is actually going to be a little bit of a different um, podcast in that- It's going to be good? No, I guess it'll be the same. Okay, very nope, much Nope, it'll same. be the same. Okay, it'll be good. the same. Well, so actually, if, if you're following along, um, we just finished Zion Part 2, of our 19 part. Uh, and what would come after Zion part two, do you think? Well, Zion part three would, normally. But here under after Zion part two, and we leave you with a cliffhanger, comes this topic. So, And, and we, we're we bringing it up because of the timely nature. I put nature. Richard
1: in charge of when the episodes come out because he's the business <laughs> PhD. Right. So he's the one who's supposed to have all the numbers together. That's why he's always trying to talk about rice tariffs. So I figured he would be the one arranging when things come out. So you go Zion one, Zion two, something completely different.
0: That's right. So we've actually received several emails and Facebook messages about the uh, new series on Hulu, uh, NFX called Under the Banner of Heaven. And so we've received so many, and and this TV show had actually has just launched relatively recently. I think it's in as we're recording this, it's in episode three or episode four, something like that. It's a limited series on FX, and so we wanted. Do you uh, want to give
1: them the time that it airs at this point? My goodness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, 7 p.m. Mountain, uh, uh, 8 p.m. Central. So, so the the story. So I'll read from the. From the description from uh, from the show, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven, starring Andrew Garfield, the worst of the Spider-Mans. FX is... Is that... What is that what that's what it says. It says it right that's there. That's
1: a very interesting way to sell it this is, It is interesting.
0: I mean, he was fine, but he was the worst of the three for sure. He wasn't very good. FX is Under the Banner of Heaven, the limited series inspired by the bestseller by John Krakauer, follows the murder of Brenda Wright Lafferty and her baby daughter in the suburb of the Salt Lake Valley. As Detective Jeb Pyre investigates uh, events that transpired, he uncovers buried truths about the origins of the LDS religion and the violent consequences of unyielding faith. Do you do you think that they said it kind of breathlessly
1: like that when they They read it out?
0: They oh my gosh yeah yeah. So in their writers' meeting, they were
1: like, "Say it! Don't say it!" Well, yeah, it, it uncovered truths. No, it uncovered.
0: Truths, unyielding truths, unyielding. So the question, the, so the question then, um, and it was interesting as we were discussing. So what do we talk about? A TVMA series that we haven't watched. What and do we it, say it does about make that? It,
1: let's do a review of something <laughs> that we haven't seen.
0: And and it was interesting as we were talking about. And so hopefully, Garrett, where you can provide some some value, some valuable context here is. Um, the majority of Latter-day Saints probably aren't going to watch this show. Some certainly will. Um, but what happens, and at least what happens in a lot of the emails that we've received are is that people receive a question from a friend or family member that has seen it about aspects of it. And so um, what is what is it about and how can they have some sort of idea of how they might be able to respond to family and friends that have seen it?
1: Well, I, I think first and foremost, um, if your friends or family members' primary engagement with you on the doctrine of the church is from something they watched on Hulu, you're already kind of fighting a losing battle, right? I mean, and so you don't want to be contentious about things, you know? And, and, and you need to realize that if you have a non-Latter-day Saint friend who really thinks that they know how your church worships because they watched something on TV? Well, then that person doesn't have a whole lot of respect for you. Well, so this, <laughs>
0: so, but this this happened uh, this happened to me with uh, the Book of Mormon, the the Broadway play. Um, I had multiple people reach out to me that were I don't know that they were, you know, they weren't in my wedding line, but they were friends or acquaintances. And um, you say, hey, so do you guys believe this? And you guys believe this? I saw mm-hmm. this on on the Book of Mormon, right? And so, I mean, these things just happen. Just think if they'd watch Saturday's Warrior. <laughs> yeah, just think. Just imagine.
1: So I think there's a lot of different ways you can come to this. This is a, a, a series that's based on, as it says, on a book. Um, John Krakauer is someone who uh, was a best-selling author, before he he wrote um, under the banner of heaven and even the, the subtitle of it right it's the under the banner of heaven the story of a story of a violent faith so you can already get just from the title of the book I mean it's almost like he's giving you a 19th century title like we read <laughs> we read with uh, Mormonism unveiled right you can already tell the premise of the book before you even open the book right Faith is violent. And that's actually going to be a recurring theme throughout what he's trying to argue, and he's he's trying to argue that that these murders that were committed, um, these the Lafferty murders, were the direct result of the centuries long uh, embrace of Latter Day Saint faith that that carries with it this implicit. Uh, violence or this this choice to be violent in in the name of god um now you might wonder what are crack hours credentials right so uh he got his history bachelor and his history masters and his history phd no he didn't and he, he's an investigative journalist and so part of the reason why the book was such a, a hot seller is it it's You know, a a type of a true crime, you know, uh, uh, before they had podcasts, almost like that. A true crime podcast in the sense that here's this seemingly incredibly bizarre. And look, I I am not an expert on, you know, late 20th century Latter-day Saint uh, or Utah history. My my expertise comes earlier. But essentially... revolves around this th- these murders that were committed by the Lafferty brothers, who were these former members of the Latter-day Saint Church, who got into all kinds of false beliefs, thinking that they were receiving revelation from God. And part of that was to enter into their own polygamous marriages, which were obviously not sanctioned by the church. Uh, they, they get excommunicated and they actually form their own church called the School of the Prophets. Um, and when some of their family members don't, when some of their family members don't toe the line in their new faith, it eventually is going to spiral into the murder of this woman, Brenda Lafferty, and, and her baby. I mean, her her toddler, I think 15 months old. I mean, it's, it is horrific. And when you track it down, you find that it was because they were, they were being, uh, in, in opposition to this, this newly proclaimed faith. So the, the murders of the, the Lafferty's is, is horrific.
0: So when does this all happen? What's the timeline?
1: So we're talking the early 1980s and um, in 1982, Dan Lafferty, um, is, he's excommunicated from the church. Um, and, and I th- think it regards his attempt to practice plural marriage. Okay. So the church
0: uh, frowns on that.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is uh, the quick way to get excommunicated <laughs> from the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day saints today is to say, I am practicing plural marriage. Okay. It's actually a, it's. In fact, if anyone would like to try that out, you could talk to your bishop or stake president and say, just so you know, I'm practicing plural marriage, and let's see what the reaction is. It's, <laughs> it will be swift. Um, I don't actually recommend it for anyone. Um, I don't speak by experience, um, but uh, th- that is a, is something that is frowned upon now. Um, so his brother is excommunicated from the church um, a year later, in 1983, and then it's in 1984 that they're going to found their their church. Um, That, um, you know, his belief that he has, uh, that Ron is receiving these, these revelations of, of what God wants them to do is going to lead to these, to these murders. Um, the, the, the point of obviously look, there's, there's violence and crime that takes place all over the place. So why do we care so much about this? Certainly, you know, there are lots of people being murdered. Why does Hulu care about this one, or why does John Crackower? And and it's because of the argument that's being made. You know, your 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 first Latter Day Saint response to this is going to be, you know, someone who may not be a member will say, "Oh yeah, you, you, the Mormons. You know, that's like that show on Hulu where those those people killed those people, right?" And the response from a Latter-day Saint is going to be, well, they weren't actually members of our church, right? They'd been excommunicated from our church.
0: Because they are
1: crazy. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, that's certainly what they'd say. At the same time, you know, people from outside of a faith community often don't give a lot of respect to those boundaries that are being set by the faith community. If someone who was a Catholic was excommunicated from the Catholic Church for their false doctrines and then killed several people saying he was doing it in the name of the Catholic Church, a non-Catholic still might, you know, especially if they have negative views towards the Catholic Church, you know, if you happen to be, if you happen to be, you know, John Calvin, that non-Catholic, you know, the non-Catholic view still might be critical of the Catholic Church as, as creating the the, you know, the platform whereby this person became a murderer. Frankly, it's just a a human, uh, a human condition, condition. Yeah. Where we try to, we try to, we try to compartmentalize and place things in categories. And so we try to have explanations for things which are often quite superficial As anyone could point out, and no doubt any Latter-day Saint who's confronted with this book or this film will point out, well, there are people in every faith group, or not even faith group, there are people in every group that are extremists, who will resort to things that are completely outside of the boundaries of that group. Is the group then to be blamed when that happens? Right? So if, if the group is saying, don't do this, and someone says, well, I'm going to do it anyway, is it actually the group's fault? What other actions can the group take beyond excommunication or referring someone to authorities if they've committed a crime? And so the, the premise behind the book and then the movie is something that's beyond that. In fact, uh, I will take you to crack hours, uh, his, his own preface, so that you you can hear it from him. And you can see where this ends up being a relatively shaky foundation to start a, a book, which is going to not just talk about these murders, but the reason why Latter-day Saints care about it is the attempt to try to argue that there is something inherent in in the Latter-day Saint faith and in faith in general that leads people to be violent criminals. And so uh, let's read what he has to say first. He's going to start off at first making a larger argument that extremism in it can, can take place in, in any form. Um, so for instance... In any human endeavor, some fraction of its practitioners will be motivated to pursue that activity with such concentrated focus and unalloyed passion that it will consume them utterly. One has to look no further than the individual who feels compelled to devote their lives to becoming a concert pianist, say, or climbing Mount Everest. For some, the province of extreme holds an allure that's irresistible, and a certain percentage of such fanatics will inevitably fixate on matters of the spirit. So he starts off by saying, look, there's extremism in everything. However, that's going to change as he concludes his introduction to the book. Although the far territory of the extreme can exert an intoxicating pull on susceptible individuals of all bents, extremism seems to be especially prevalent among those inclined by temperament or upbringing towards religious pursuits. So here he is saying, and notice he says seems. You would think if you were writing a book making the argument that people who belong to religious faith are more susceptible to violent reaction, that you would cite some kind of a study that demonstrates that that's the case. But of course, there is no demonstration of that. There's no citation of it. Instead, this, what we call in the, in the craft, you know, the, the weasel words of seems, extremism seems seems to who seems to you cuz you don't have faith seems to scientists seems to historians seems to who you can see how completely lacking in actual credentials this book is going to have just from the in, the introduction if the point i want to make is that religious people are more susceptible to violent zealousness than people who aren't religious, then I probably need to have evidence that's more than just, I think so, which isn't very good evidence. But don't worry, he continues, quote, Faith is the very antithesis of reason, injudiciousness a crucial component of spiritual devotion. I see. So, someone who has faith doesn't have any reason, and someone who has faith has no judiciousness. So, the type of judiciousness that would let you know that if you're not an expert on a topic, you probably shouldn't write a book on that topic. That kind of judiciousness? Or maybe the type of judiciousness that knows that when you're not an expert on the topic, that... You're going to write all kinds of things that you are totally wrong about and yet still be unwilling to concede the point. He uh, it goes on to say that when religious fanaticism supplants rationalization, all bets are suddenly off. So it's only religion that is not rational right uh, other things if we could just eliminate religion from the, the the terms of question then people would be rational I mean you know all these incredibly religious men like Stalin clearly if only he had eliminated religion from his life he wouldn't have murdered the 20 million people that he might have I mean that the, the, re, the reality of of this argument, Is one of, you know, you hear people say, well, a lot more people have been killed in the name of Jesus than have ever been saved by it. Well, that's certainly not true for a Latter day Saint, since we believe everyone's going to be saved. But on top of that, also, the argument is one that suggests because the Crusades existed, because you have Intifadas, because you have all of these various wars that do have a religious bent, that in fact religion causes more harm than it does good. The funny part about that argument is not only is it only made by people who don't themselves have faith, it's also made without evidence. Because what do studies demonstrate? People who have firm religious convictions are happier, tend to have better mental health, they live longer. That's what actual studies demonstrate. So while we have actual studies demonstrating that religion is a positive influence in people's lives, you have people on the outside looking into that box of faith that is so utterly irrational, saying, I just don't think so. But saying, I just don't think so, isn't the same thing as having evidence. And and that's the reason why I say you always want to be careful where you're getting your source material from because if the person presenting the material has a demonstrated lack of willingness to even acknowledge what they don't know about the source, why in the world would you listen to what they have to say? Now, the book, you know, was, I remember when the book came out, came out in 2003. And you're thinking, well, why would anyone care so much about this? Obviously, there's all kinds of other murders that happen. I mean, you know, we, we talked, uh, very early on in this podcast, in one of our episodes about the Mark Hoffman murders that took place. Why isn't that as big a deal? Well, because this book really, it it made this argument going all the way back into Latter-day Saint history, that Latter-day Saints are inherently violent, and that you can demonstrate this through something that Joseph Smith said, or through that Brigham Young said, or uh, one of the real focuses on the book is an attempt to tie the Mountain Meadows Massacre into the ideology that would cause the Lafferty's to think that it was okay to murder these these two women, well, the, this woman and her child. Um, th- that's the argument that's being made. Is there this direct connection? Is, is, is Lafferty saying, you know what? I'm going to do the same thing that they did at Mountain Meadows. No, but even if he did say that, would that be an indictment on the religion? You have all kinds of people who think that they are plying out in you know what, what it is that that uh, some forebear in the American past would have them do. If Washington was here, he would say this. But the reality is no matter what someone says with that, they have no idea what Washington would say. He would probably say, You guys have dental implants? I'm going for that, right? I mean, it, it, it's always this kind of a supposition that goes right along the line with what we talked about before with conspiracy theories, and that is, oh, it, it stands to reason. Usually when someone says it stands to reason, what they really mean is, I don't actually have evidence, but wouldn't it be cool if? And that's not history. So maybe we need to talk a little bit about um, the, the historical premises that he's, he's attempting to make here um, and and maybe for some of our listeners, you might not have ever heard of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, or if you have, you've, you've only heard a little bit about it. I remember the first time I heard about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And it was from uh, this uh, guy who was super antagonistic towards uh, our faith. And I was a teenager and I, I met him. Uh, and and we were talking about different things and, and, and we weren't in a religious mode. We were just talking about different things. And, and he said to me, he was a younger guy, I mean, you know, but, um, oh, you, you know, you're one of those Mormons, you know, I said, yeah, I am. Well, you know, you're okay with the fact that they just murdered all those people out in mountain meadows. And I was like, what are you talking about? Part of the problem was the guy made it sound like, uh, that it had just like happened last week. Um, and for all I know, maybe he thought that it had just happened last week. He's like, and so you know, I, I try to keep up on the news, and so I, I, I didn't think that it had happened. And of course, as I go to research it, and then even more so when I get into my uh, my history programs, I realize what all of this is. So let's describe it. Now, I should say um, we've we've had several requests. Like always, we get lots of requests to do things that we ignore, or don't do, which is which is all of them, but we've also had requests about this early Utah history period. So at some point, we will go into greater detail, or at least we will just say at some point that we are going to go into greater detail. Whether or not we will go into greater detail will remain to be seen. That might be somewhere in season 11 of the podcast, but we will spend more time on these. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview of this time period, starting with The Creation of of Utah Territory. Now, I know that it sounds like I I said, I need to give you a brief overview. We'll start with the creation. (laughs) So God said, let there be light. Um, um, When the Latter-day Saints move to the Great Basin, when they move to the Salt Lake Valley, important to remember that they leave the United States and they are moving into Mexico And even though it's nominally part of Mexico, it's a part of Mexico for which there are no permanent Mexican settlements at all. There are certainly Native Americans living in those places. But even those Native Americans would have looked a little bit sideways at someone saying, oh, so you're part of the Mexican nation? They would say, no, we are the Ute Empire. Um, Because even though on a map it was part of Mexico, there were no permanent settlements there. There were some fur trappers that had come through. But there wasn't permanent settlement. There weren't towns. There weren't there weren't uh, colonies of Mexicans or Americans living in what was what is today Utah. So the Latter Day Saints leave the United States. They are outside of the United States. If you listen to some of our podcasts surrounding the the martyrdom and the Council of Fifty, you will understand that that's that was the goal was to get outside of the United States during the exodus from Nauvoo. And as they are trying to set up in winter quarters, basically to to head to head further west, the Mexican War breaks out. Latter-day Saints are requested to furnish a company of troops, which they do. Someday we'll do one on the Mormon Battalion. I'm waiting on that one though, because what I wanted I want to springboard me talking about the Mormon Battalion to me someday being allowed to serve at the mormon battalion visitors monument that's that's what i want to
0: do well the mormon battalion is a is a a special place in your heart this is what you wrote i wrote
1: on with my dissertation i mean i but the reality is the mormon battalion monument or the the visitor center is it's in san diego (laughs) so what i want for my life people are like oh do you want to serve at the church historic sites on a mission when you retire I don't know if you've ever been to winter quarters in the winter, but I don't want to serve there. Neither did anyone else who was living in winter quarters in the winter. And frankly, I don't much want to serve in Palmyra in the winter for anyone who's been to upstate New York and thinks those winters are just balmy. Um, as someone from Idaho, I don't like those type of winters and that's, that's that's a a lot. Yeah. um, you know, maybe someone from Canada listening, like, oh, you don't know what that's all about. But uh, uh, at any rate, the San Diego War of Italian, it, it, you know, it's beautiful, right? It's this is beautiful visitor center and in, you know, San Diego, one of the most beautiful places in the country. That's it. That's So that I'm, I'm going to save that for later on in our podcasting so that I'm hoping to catch the eye of somebody who can 20 years from now. <laughs>
0: um assign me there so we'll get to the mormon battalion in 20 years when you're set to retire yeah
1: i'm assuming that episode you know, i mean season 25 or 26 that's good and then we'll do polygamy in 27 perfect yeah yep. those of that's not we won't practice it we'll just we'll talk about it um so the the mormon battalion's called out in the midst of the mexican war Uh, The the Latter-day Saints are still on these kind of difficult terms with the United States. Uh, Crossing the plains doesn't really help that. They have some bad experiences in Iowa electorally with uh, politicians trying to uh, persecute them. So even as they're leaving Iowa, things are still negative. When they get to Salt Lake, the war is still going on. And it's not until 1848, so a year after they arrive in Salt Lake, that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ends the Mexican War. And it's very important because part of the way that the war ended was something that's called the Mexican cession, uh, meaning ceding of land, the giving up of territory. Uh, the United States does pay Mexico this piddly little amount for the millions upon millions of square miles that are taken, but I mean that's the United States always like I know we're taking this, and you don't have a say, but here's some money, just you know, just to cut, just to help you feel better. I guess Latter-day Saints didn't even get that in Missouri. We should have at least gotten that. Yeah. Um, at any rate, all of that area, which is now. You know California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas because they hadn't recognized Texas yet. Uh, half of Colorado, part of Wyoming, um, Utah, Nevada, all of that area was part of this Mexican session that's now ceded to the United States. So they left the United States, they became they, they settled in Mexico, and then that part of Mexico became part of the United States as a result of that treaty. We could do a 15 part podcast on what happens next in American history because the Mexican session and the Mexican War, that 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 acquiring of land is what directly leads to the American Civil War. So the Latter-day Saints have not just found themselves back into the United States, they have found themselves back into what will become the most controversial part of the United States. And you might be thinking, well, why? I mean, everybody's willing to fight over, you know, Ely, Nevada. Um, Well, it's because prior to the, the Mexican War, slavery could not expand anymore. There was nowhere else for slavery to expand. The Missouri Compromise had drawn a line That had said definitively the southern border of Missouri, that line drawn into the Mexican territory, was the only places that were still open for new slave states. So that meaning Arkansas and part of what is today Oklahoma were the only places that were even open to becoming new slave states. It seemed the slavery question had been settled. Because everyone in the 19th century believed if slavery could not expand, slavery would die. It would die at least a political death as more and more states joined that were free states. But it would also die an economic death because slavery needed to expand in order to maintain its vitality. Seems like I'm going a little bit too much in detail on that. No, no. Yeah. You, That's it's good. You fell asleep for part of it. That's the reason why I oh, brought that up. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah, but uh, it, the reason why I bring it up is it does affect what happens next. And again, we'll go into this more in detail maybe on a separate history podcast or or not ever. Those are the two <laughs> options. We'll do one of them um, after. Uh, these territories come to the United States, that whole question of the expansion of slavery becomes front and center all over again. Before there was no possible way for slavery to expand. Now you have roughly a third of the present day United States that has been added as new territory. Are these going to be free territories? Are these going to be slave territories? And the Latter-day Saints find themselves smack dab in the middle of those territories and not just smack dab in the middle. They are one of the only populated areas. Again, when I say that, I mean populated by Mexicans or by Euro Americans. Obviously there's native Americans in all of those places, but neither the Mexicans or the Americans are counting the native Americans when, when they're doing that. Um, But New Mexico has a very large population of primarily uh, Mexican, uh, intermarried uh, with Native Americans population. Um, And so there's a a population center there and in Salt Lake as more and more Latter-day Saints move there. We think of California as having this giant population. But in 1848, when the treaty is signed, when that becomes part of the United States, it doesn't have a giant population. In fact, it has almost no population. Um, it has fewer than five thousand uh, Mexicans or Americans living in all of California. So, what happens next is the the gold rush, eighteen forty nine, and the rapid population of California, which pushes this question of: Are these places going to become free or slave? Right to the forefront. Southerners are pretty irate at the idea that while they shouldered most of the burden of the fighting in the Mexican War, that none of these territories could be open to slavery well, yeah, I wouldn't fought for it. I would now want to move to the territory that I captured when I was fighting, but I can't bring my legal property with me. That's how they talked about it and how they thought about it. I'm not saying that's justified. Slavery's wrong, in case anyone listening is wondering. Um, the, the, the Latter-day Saints find themselves in this position where California, the, the western portion of California, is now petitioning for statehood as a free state. Southerners don't want California to enter in as a free state. And there is a great compromise that is worked out that has a huge effect on the Latter-day Saints. It's called the Compromise of 1850. So if you're wondering when it happened... 1849. 1850. But um, in the Compromise, there's a couple things that happens. California is admitted as a free state. The slave trade which had been going on in Washington, D.C., is abolished so that there's no longer slave markets right outside of the Congress where they're arguing about freedom and liberty while they're enslaving people a few blocks over. It was actually bad enough. You could actually hear the slave auctions from inside of the House Mm -hmm. at times. Anyway, um, and then what do you do with all this other territory? Well, the New Mexico area, the New Mexico territory, which involves, you know, most of what is today Arizona, New Mexico, and part of Nevada, and the Utah territory. Both of these two territories would be created. They would be territories, not states, which means they'd have federally appointed governors. And in those areas, slavery would not be outlawed. In those areas, slavery would follow something that they, a political uh, idea that they were banding about at the time called uh, popular sovereignty. The idea behind it is, instead of saying this is going to be a slave state or this is going to be a free state, let's let the inhabitants of that territory vote whether they're going to be a free state or slave state at the time of their admission as a state. Well, that meant that technically... New Mexico territory and Utah territory were now open to sl- slavery was not
0: illegal in those territories. As part of that would it be possible for the state to later change their mind or once it's once it's codified? It's- states always have the ability to change their mind.
1: But one of the things they had learned from the admission of new states in the South is there was very little incentive for new slave states to ever abolish slavery. Most of the northern states abolish slavery at a time when slavery is at its economic least value. It's not very valuable, and and so because it's not very valuable, there's not very many people who have a lot of skin in that game of trying to, to keep it around. Even with that, though, places like Delaware, where slavery's profitability had been declining for a century, still desperately tried to maintain slavery. Uh, Even during the Civil War, even when Lincoln proposes a way to free those slaves, they still utterly reject it. So there's a lot more cultural belief uh, underpinning slavery than I think many Americans are willing to admit. The idea of this racial superiority is a... driving force for many southerners who who own slaves it's not just about hey this guy doesn't get paid who works for me it's about control it's about dominance and it is certainly about a type of white supremacy and and elitism where i might be the lowest most you know poorest country bumpkin I don't even have the 3 teeth between me and my sister to even, you know, say that we have a set of teeth in, in our mouth, you know, Arkansas, hillbilly whatever. But I am accorded deference above and beyond the most wealthy and educated black person living in the south. So I could be I could be a black plantation owner with millions of dollars, and there are some very few black uh, property owners in the South that are former slaves, freed slaves, or, or descended from freed slaves, and the laws were such that the poorest white was of elevated stature to uh, to to the richest black person, or the, the least educated white to the most educated black person. So that there's a, there's certainly a cultural component to that. Now that's a whole nother nine podcasts. What it does for this compromise does is it establishes utah territory well the only population living in utah territory outside of the native americans essentially is the latter-day saints there are very few people that are not latter-day saints living in that whole area so pragmatically uh, governor millard fillmore will assign brigham young to be the federal governor of the territory. And this is going to cause all kinds of heartache and consternation over the course of the next seven years, especially from non-Latter-day Saints and from people who get excommunicated from the Latter-day Saint Church, because they will say, look at this, Brigham Young is the prophet of the church and... He's the governor of the territory. Anything that Brigham Young
0: says goes. So, what's the time frame here for, for President Fillmore making So, it's the
1: Compromise of 1850. So, in 1850 is when it's enacted. That's when Utah becomes a territory. And Brigham Young is also in 1850 made the governor of that newly created territory. The other, um, the other uh, appointees, there, there is one other Latter day Saint who's appointed. Well, two other Latter day Saints. One is uh, Zerubbabel.
0: Uh, Zerubbabel. Oh, well, that's a fantastic. Yeah. He rebuilt the temple after he rebuilt the Babylonian temple, captivity. It's yeah, a great and story. And also
1: became one of the associate uh, uh, justices of the Utah Territorial Supreme Court. <laughs> um, but the other, appointed, uh, other federal appointees were like most territorial appointees. Um, political appointments. Uh, the reality is back in the day, the press of office seekers, when someone was elected is just something that all of these early presidents write about that from the time they're inaugurated all day, every day, you have people coming to see you wanting to be the postmaster of Topsfield, Massachusetts.
0: That's a highly sought after position.
1: Every, if you've been there, you want to be there. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I, that was top of mind because I'm going out there uh, as part of the Enzyme Peak Foundation, which used to be called the Mormon Historic Sites Foundation. Um, that that is where the Smith family on Father Smith's side and and his father all resided. This is where Father Smith is born, Topsfield, Massachusetts. And and the Enzyme Peak Foundation has uh, secured this large monument they're putting up there, and it's being dedicated. Uh, in May um, uh, by President Ballard. And so we're going out there as a part of that. So it's top of mind. But I guarantee that the Topsfield, Massachusetts, Postal Service was something that people wanted. Because these federal appointments, they carry with them not only this guaranteed income, but they also can be seen as a stepping stone. Well, I don't want to be the territorial governor of New Mexico, but if I am the territorial governor of New Mexico, then I can come back to Alabama and I had now have on my, my resume that I was a territorial governor in New Mexico. By the way, make me a senator, you know, something like that. The other dirty underside of territorial appointments in the West is uh, people were in these incredibly powerful positions. And this is going to, again, sound as a shock to people living today. But in the 19th century, there were politicians who would try to make money off of their appointment. And, and in doing so, they, they became wealthy men. And there's this great study that's written about, uh, federal appointees to the Western territories about how many of them either left their positions and didn't finish or used their positions to try to, uh, Graft. I mean, if you think about it, if I'm appointed the governor of New Mexico Territory, I am thousands of miles away from Washington, D.C. There's no real federal oversight over me at all, and yet I control everything. I control what contracts the government's going to decide to to accept there. I control who gets appointed to what positions in the territory. And if you don't think someone's willing to throw a few greenbacks into the back of my hand to get that appointment, obviously people are. And so this, this, this great study demonstrates that essentially a lot of the people that get appointed to be governors of the Western territories have no connection to the territory at all, but they are disappointed office seekers. They are people who wanted to get the appointment to be, I wanted to be the surveyor of canals in in Pennsylvania, uh, but instead you're sending me, you know, to Washington territory as an assessor. I mean, it's a way of kind of getting rid of people that are constantly asking for position but who have some kind of political connection. This is exactly what happens in Utah territory. There are multiple people that are appointed to either the Supreme Court of the territory in Utah, or uh, as the, uh, the, the secretary of the territory, which was a big deal back then that, that his, his appointment is on the basis of who his dad is and his dad's, well off and is an important influential person and he wants his son to have a position and, and he gets one and so it works out great. Again, that kind of stuff doesn't happen today. There's never any family members that are a part of people's political committees you know, you'll never hear stories of politicians hiring their son to be the head of their campaign but back then things like that happened a lot and So what it means is, you ended up in these territories with people who had no connection to the territory, and worse, there was no oversight of them, and worse still, most of them saw their position as just a stepping stone to either get rich themselves or to hurry and get a better position. Well, if any of those are your goals, and you get appointed to Utah Territory, Things aren't going to work out very well. Maybe you were excited that you got appointed to a territorial position because you thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to be living the high life. We're going to be the most popular people in that whole territory. I am now the governor's wife, that kind of thing. Well, when you come to Utah, you find out very quickly, if you happen to be a relatively hedonistic politician— there's not any brothels and they don't even have a ton of alcohol. And by the way, they don't care what you have to say. They care what this guy who says he's a prophet has to say. So it graded a great deal on the sensibilities of federal officials. Now, if while it sounds, you know, to a non-Latter-day Saint, the idea that Brigham Young would be both the president of the church and also the governor of Utah territory sounds incredibly like, well, how uh, one man can't have all that power. Think about what the alternative is, that you have a territory in which 95% of the people living in it belong to a hated faith group, but the person in charge of that entire territory isn't a member of that faith group. It, it's actually it's far less democratic the other way around when someone's like, yeah, I mean, I think Brigham Young was just doing whatever helped Mormon interests which would have been literally what his constituency expected him to do. Yeah, I don't know why these 95% of the people here want him to make it easier to build church houses. It's just crazy. I'm sure it's just him him doing what he wants. It, it, the, the reality is that he does have a lot of power, and it clashes with these federal officials. In 1851, you have an entire group of officials that are going to leave their post claiming all kinds of negative things against Brigham Young. But... When Millard Fillmore investigates, he makes the determination that the fault was on the federal officials' part and they get replaced by new officials. But as time goes on, and as Brigham Young is the governor of the territory, things start to get more and more heated, not just with Utah territory, but also with slavery and the federal government in general. This is the same time period that in Kansas, you, you, you might have heard of bleeding Kansas. Well, what happens in Kansas? The idea of popular sovereignty was whenever the state gets ready to petition to become a state, they will develop either a free or slave constitution. Well, what happens in Kansas? The Election for the, the the Constitutional Convention, essentially, for Kansas in order to be petitioned to be admitted as a state is fraudulently uh, 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 made by thousands, at least hundreds, but probably thousands. You, you could go read a book on this but um, or start your own podcast. Hey, if you were is,
0: so smart about bleeding Kansas, you'd start <sighs> your own podcast. I feel
1: like every time I talk about anything <laughs> – by the way, this is a brief overview. Of-
0: yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad you're just giving the brief overview on the uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Is
1: anyone still listening? Is- I wish there was a way in real time to determine at what point people stopped listening to the podcast.
0: <laughs> I think I think anytime that Townships is mentioned, townships. Warm. I'm going to go ahead and say Millard Fillmore is going to be a major. So, so Millard <laughs> Fillmore is a new buzzword. What about Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo? Did that... I think I think we we're I'd on like pins to see, and needles on I'd that. I'd like
1: to see like just a mass departure whenever I mention that.
0: Well, so but this this actually does. I mean, the, making like any opportunity to make fun of you is always great.
1: It's the basis of our friendship. It is.
0: <laughs> it is. <laughs> but if but uh, but there is some reason to what it is you're doing. Going back to the book, could you, could you provide like like what what's the
1: purpose? Yeah, the reason why I'm going into so much depth is the problem with the book. Is the book doesn't attempt to place things in context, or if it does provide context, it only provides negative context. So, for instance, the primary source that Crack uh, Hour is going to use for his, you know, Mormon history is going to be a seventy-year-old book from Fawn Brody, right? Uh, Because she's incredibly critical of the church's origins and its development, even though many of the things in her book have been, first of all, completely, they're completely outdated because we have so many more sources by the time he's writing this book. But also, you know, she did a lot of things that are, are not considered credible in the historical field, like psychoanalyzing people from the past on the basis of what you think happened with them. Um, there's all kinds of problems with the book. He claims that only Mormon historians have a problem with the book, but that's not true. Otherwise, people like Daniel Walker Howe, who wrote the Oxford history of this period in American history and covers Mormonism, would have been quoting from Fawn Brody's book. And he didn't, because it's terrible. And so, <laughs> and he's a Presbyterian, so I'm pretty sure he's not just doing it for the Mormons. Um, the, the, the reality is it's not considered a credible book, And even people who think that the things in it are really good, don't use it anymore because it was written in the 40s. So you don't cite books from 60, 70 years ago, because he wrote his book in 2003, so I'll give him that. You don't cite those books as proof of what you're arguing. You cite more recent things. But the problem is more recent things don't make the same kind of arguments he wants to make. So... That becomes his source. And and that's really apparent to someone who knows the field and not very apparent to someone who's just seeing this book talking about Mormonism or their faith, if they happen to be a Latter-day Saint, and they think, oh my goodness, a historian said this? So So there's very little context provided. And the context that is provided is often speculative. It is nearly always, in some ways, incomplete and also often factually inaccurate. So in order to discuss this claimed connection, I wanted you to have an understanding of what is the Mountain Meadows Massacre and how did it happen? And like all historians, I don't have the ability to actually say this is what happened. All I can do is say, let's talk Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and go from there. If I can't... You could ask me about the Challenger disaster, and I would say compromise of 1850 is where we have to start. So that that's where we're at. Um, the, the The reality of of this is that there's all kinds of tensions through throughout this period in the 1850s and Bleeding Kansas. In it, what happens is they they go to vote to become a state. These Missourians who are all pro-slavery, cross the border into Kansas, into what is today Kansas, and they vote to push a pro-slavery constitution. Now, it is widely seen as completely fraudulent. You have, you have people that aren't even trying to conceal the fact that their residency is Missouri voting in this Kansas election. And that constitution is called the Lecompton Constitution. It's Lecompton, Kansas is where the the capital of this is. So they put that forward to the country as, oh, Kansas is ready to be a slave state. Well, the free soilers in Kansas are are livid. They know that there's more free soilers in Kansas than there are slave owners. And it's just this fraudulent election that uh, causes it to be a slave state or at least petition to be a slave state. And what happens is this mini civil war devolves where the the, the free soldiers create their own constitution in, in Lawrence, Kansas, and the slave owners have theirs in, in, in Lecompton, and they actually make war on each other. The federal army is sent, but it just shows you how high tensions are. It's not certain exactly what causes James Buchanan when he's elected in 1856. So he's elected in 1856, but again, very key to remember during this time period, presidents don't actually take office until the spring of the following year. For us, it's almost the same thing. It's early January, then boom, your new president's president. But for them, it's not until March. So there are many months of lame duck presidencies that take place. When Buchanan finally takes office, he is going to relatively quickly. Yeah, things start out amicable. I mean, he meets with the Latter Day Saint representative. We have a we have a territorial delegate who's a non voting delegate in the Congress, just like Puerto Rico has a non voting uh, uh, con- Congress representative that they, they don't vote, but they represent Puerto Rico. They're elected by Puerto Ricans. They come and they they express what Puerto Rico thinks about certain things. This is this is we are representing. The territory of puerto rico but they don't actually have a vote they, they can certainly say what they think but their vote doesn't count that's what utah territory has in, in in 1856 they have a territorial delegate who's been elected by the people it's not like he's just some appointee he's elected but he's also uh doesn't have any actual political power he's just kind of like an advisor basically saying oh this is what the people of, of utah territory think he meets with Buchanan right after Buchanan's elected, and it's an amicable meeting. Well, in the months that follow, that, that amity, it goes away very quickly. And Buchanan will become convinced. And this is where I say we don't really know. In fact, we have there are multiple different theories of what happens. The one theory is the kind of straight-up theory. There's multiple antagonistic reports that reach D.C. from former... Utah officials, non Latter-day Saint officials, claiming that Brigham Young is not actually enforcing the laws that the Mormons are all completely opposed to the United States that they are that they are flaunting the government and that uh, the laws of the government and that Brigham Young is the head of that that uh, 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 problem. Well, so that that's that's a pretty standard one. He receives these evil reports and he acts on it. There's another theory that was put forward, um, maybe a decade ago now, um, that in fact, Buchanan was attempting to leverage Congress for his plan. He had a plan to try to purchase and annex Cuba from, uh, from Spain, which was a long sought after American foreign policy. But you have to listen to our foreign policy podcast, which we haven't started yet or ever to get that one. We'll just do a general history umbrella, um, and then there's the other, more cynical view, that Buchanan is deliberately trying to find something that is going to unify this completely broken nation. By 1857, people are at they're they're starting to to actually intimate that there might be violence over the issue of slavery. That's how heated the debate is, and and so there's this there's this um possibility at least or at least it's conjectured that maybe buchanan certainly no friend of mormons is going to send an army to utah in part to try to find some other monster to destroy to quote uh you know benjamin franklin that that by by saying, Oh, the Mormons are the real enemies. Well, Republicans and Democrats can come together on that because everyone hates Mormons. So I can't send the army to definitively intervene in Kansas because then I'll risk war between either the slaveholders and the non-slaveholders, whichever side we're on. But I can send an army to Utah because everyone hates Mormons. And, and that, that will have a unifying factor. We don't actually really know. Buchanan has his public statements when she says that Mormons are in direct rebellion to the United States. But we don't have any of his personal stuff. And the reason why we don't is uh, Buchanan's niece will destroy all of his papers after he dies. And so we don't – he is one of the – Does she give a reason for why she doesn't? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm sure at some point she might give a reason, but she, she, his papers are some of the sparsest, they they are certainly the sparsest presidential papers from that time period in, in American history, because none of his, his papers, at least very, very few, whenever we have a paper directly from Buchanan, it's because someone else had it. And then it eventually made its way back into archival system. So it, it what you don't have is a Buchanan journal. So in, um, when you deal with the other presidents like James Polk, it's great because James Polk keeps this daily journal. And so all the time, James Polk will go before Congress and say, we've got to do this. Well, except he's from Tennessee. So with a Tennessee accent and then he'll write in his journal, I don't think we should do that at all, but I know that's what people want to hear. I mean, so, he, you know, he's a very consummate politician. He's, he, 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 you know that he doesn't mean what he says or does mean what he says in part because he's the one telling you either through his journal or through private correspondence with trusted friends. With Buchanan, we don't get that because we don't have his journal and uh, we, we have very little of his correspondence um, from, from his side. So um, knowing exactly why he sends the army to Utah is is very very difficult from the latter-day saint perspective in utah territory it doesn't matter so much the reason why he's sending the army to utah it matters far more that an army is coming to utah and that this army is sent out in a way that is not normal so so the the president has the ability to fire a governor whenever he wants they he appoints them they're federal appointees and then they have to be approved by congress but you know that's that's it they're approved by congress and 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 they go on but just like today the president could decide right now to fire his his secretary of commerce he could say you know what and you're out and then appoint a new one now that new one might not be approved by the senate or whatever but All of these are federally appointed positions that the president could at any point end. And that's what he does. He replaces Brigham Young as the governor with uh, another governor. The problem is he doesn't actually convey to Brigham Young that that's what's going on. Latter-day Saints will read in Eastern newspapers that they receive through the mails that the Mormons in Utah are in rebellion, that James Buchanan has ordered a third of the United States army to march there and suppress
0: this rebellion. So just, just a third of the U S military. is basically- Yeah.
1: at the time, well, I mean, maybe only a quarter, depending on how you decide to count it.
0: But, but regardless, I mean, this is,
1: there's roughly around eight to 10,000, uh, uh, members of the U.S. military at the time, we had a very small professional military, and 2,500 troops are ordered to
0: but, to Utah. But to, to that point, though, this is not some small force. It's a it is a huge contingent of the existing
1: U.S. military. In fact, it's so big it it, it sh- it's going to put strain on the other aspects of the U.S. military because again, we don't have this massive military back then the idea was if someone invades us we'll raise a bunch of volunteers which is what we did in in the mexican war when we went to war with mexico nearly that entire army was a volunteer army so latter-day saints on the ground are going to find out that an army is heading to utah that they're being called traitors and they don't know what the end of that army is. Certainly the newspapers that they're receiving are talking about things that sound eerily similar to the extermination of the Mormons that took place in Missouri. Now, someone might say, well, you're kind of jumping to the you know the worst possible uh, scenario. But if you were a Latter-day Saint living in Utah in 1857, you probably, very possibly in the past decade would have experienced two such ethnic cleansings that had taken place. One in Missouri and another in Nauvoo where the very fact that you belong to the religion is the reason why you are being driven out. It's, it's, it's easy for someone looking back to say, Oh, I'm sure they should have just waited to see what was going on with the army, but they waited to see what was going on with the army at Hans mill and at far West. If you're someone who actually experienced that, the idea that, oh, of course, you would just be temperate and you'd wait to find out is a lot harder thing to to, to understand. So next week, what we're going to talk about, uh, we'll try to get back into the actual topic, but we're going to talk about, you know, uh, on the heels of this army coming, this horrific event that takes place uh, at the Mountain Meadows Massacre.
0: Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com.
1: Until next time.